This is the ICO Alert Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Finch, founder of ICO Alert. ICO Alert maintains the only comprehensive list of every single initial coin offering that includes all of the active ICOs that are happening now, as well as all of the upcoming ICOs. You can check out the full list on our website at icoalert.com. My guest today is Will Harborn, the project lead at Ethfinex, a new decentralized exchange from Bitfinex. During the podcast, we'll talk about the Ethfinex platform, why they want to eventually decentralize their entire exchange infrastructure, their plans for the future, and more. Without further ado, let's get to it. Will, thanks so much for joining me today. Robert, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk a bit more about Ethfinex. Absolutely. I am too. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are, are excited to hear more about FNX. Uh, in addition to you guys reaching out, we had a, a lot of user requests for you guys. So I'm excited to, to talk about um, you know, your existing structure. I know you guys launched FNX uh, a few weeks ago, and I'm also excited to, to talk about your plans for the future. So for, for those who are listening that, that aren't sure what FNX is, can you uh, give us a little uh, overview of it and, and what you guys are trying to accomplish? Yeah, and I'll start with what we are now, which is quite different from our long-term vision. And then I'll, I'll move on to explain a bit more where we're trying to get to. So what we've launched now is FNX Beta. Um, it's really a, a very early stage, but it's laying the groundwork for, for what we want to achieve. So the FNX Beta that's out there now is it's very, it's really, it's really a centralized exchange, actually, what we've launched. Um, but it has a few extra features. So, for example... Um, it's got a, um, a token sale platform. So if users want to be able to um, contribute to really high-quality token sales that have been picked out by some of our partners, they can do that via us and afterwards have their tokens available for trading. And it's also got a discussion forum. And a discussion forum, um, which may seem strange as part of an exchange, is really laying the groundwork for the fact that we want this exchange to end up being really community-run and owned and decentralize it in every sense of the word. So eventually, we hope that, for example, things like token listing decisions, which tokens should end up being traded on FNX, will be made by our users. And the way that we're going to get there is, is via these sorts of community features, but also through our own token. So our token, the next token, won't ever be sold in a crowd sale but will be distributed to users of the exchange. So the more you, you end up using it, the more of these tokens you earn. And eventually that will give you a right into the governance of the platform. Um, and alongside that, on the technology side, we want to decentralize also the, the trading that happens. So the first stage of that will be simply trustless portals where you can trade on a centralized matching engine, but without having to deposit and withdraw your funds. And later on, we hope that it, nearly all of the infrastructure will be distributed and decentralized in various ways, both using blockchain and through other means. Awesome. And when you say decentralized versus centralized, just for those people who you know maybe are new to the crypto space, um, what are the main differences between, say, a decentralized exchange and a, a centralized exchange like uh, Bitfinex or Coinbase? Well, there are a lot of ways you can look at that. But I think one of the ways that is most important to people is whether or not you have control of your funds at all times. 
And so typically on somewhere like Bitfinex or Coinbase, in order to trade, you first have to send your coins or your tokens to someone else. So in the case of Bitfinex, you deposit those into a central wallet with everyone else's funds. You trade, and at the end, when you finish trading, you withdraw them back to your own wallet. Um, and, of course, there are other aspects of decentralization. So, for example, um, you know, it's centralized also in the fact that it's Bitfinex who make all the decisions on what tokens get listed. It's Bitfinex who also, therefore, keep all the fees and have control you know, over every decision that that company is making. On the other side of things, um, a decentralized exchange um, typically wouldn't have that control. So if we look at, for example, the simplest case where you have a smart contract that settles trades. So if I want to trade with another person, um, we can do an atomic swap. So in a single transaction, um, my funds would go to you and yours would come to me. And if either of us didn't send those funds, the whole transaction would fail. And at no part has a central party had to be trusted with either of our money um, or our tokens. And we, we both know that um, this is this is completely trustless. Awesome. And that's great. And it's something that, you know, if you're in the space, you're going, obviously, you know, I've known this for a while, but if you're new, um, the, the whole concept of, of a decentralized exchange may be new to you. And, you know, there's this um, pretty common, I guess, phrase or, or piece of advice within the crypto industry, which is don't store uh, your crypto, don't store your tokens, your coins, whatever they may be, don't store them on exchanges, because then, like you said, you know, you don't control them, you don't control the private keys that allow you to access them. So uh, we're in kind of an interesting almost like a, a limbo or an in-between phase right now. Um, that's the way I look at it, where people you know, understand, for the most part, not to hold their tokens or their coins on exchanges. But when it comes to you know, trading, really, that's the only way to do it right now. There are, of course, some decentralized exchanges like um, Ether Delta and Radar Relay that's built on 0x, um, which is, I guess, similar to how Ethfinex is built and, and will eventually be rolled out. Um, but you still, for the most part, to, to access a lot of different currency pairs, you have to go through a centralized exchange. So it's still a, a pretty big part of the industry, uh, especially when it comes to trading. Exactly. And, and I think that's kind of already proved the point in that it's, it's now possible, at least, to build a very, de a very decentralized exchange. I'm not going to say fully decentralized because, for example, Radar Relay, you still rely on a centralized uh, order book. Even right. you, you rely on centralized DNS servers to some extent, but you really are decentralizing as much as possible. And for many users, although for the moment there are still some problems with scalability of those kind of solutions, that's already enough. And you know that offers the perfect solution. But a lot of users still are forced to use centralized exchanges because of the limitations of the current solutions. So um, what I really see Esthenex doing is trying to kind of bring those two ends of the spectrum closer together and almost it's a segmentation of user bases. So you have some customers who really highly value the pure trustlessness of it. Um, and they actually may not be trading very often, but when they do trade, it might be a large amount and they want not to have to trust someone else with their funds. They want to use a trustless way of trading. Um, whereas on the other side, you have potentially algorithmic traders or arbitrages who may not actually have high 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 um, values of their funds at risk, but are trading, you know, multiple times per second, which you can't do over a blockchain at the moment, and they still want to be able to use a centralized solution. So the rest of the next, we're we're looking to almost link these two together. So we'll have on the one side this centralized exchange, on the other side, trustless portals, and in the longer term, a scalable 
such as decentralized exchange, but which link together their liquidity and allow, you can even have cross trades. So someone who's trading on the centralized exchange could actually end up trading, you know, matching orders with someone who's coming via the decentralized exchange. Oh, so you wow. kind of, you, you port the liquidity across to, to both sides. Oh, okay. That makes a ton of sense. And, and that's a huge feature that, uh, you know, no other, at least as far as I know, no other decentralized exchange has done. And, you know, if you ask people in the community, the biggest criticism of uh, decentralized exchanges other than usability, like with Ether Delta, where it takes a while for a transaction to confirm, which is more the fault of Ethereum than it is of Ether Delta. Um, but the, the, the other biggest concern is really liquidity. I mean, you go to an Ether Delta or a Radar Relay, and that while there is some liquidity, you know, for, for many people who are trading smaller amounts, if you want to trade, whether it's buy or sell a, a huge amount of something, um, and even with some currency pairs, it, it is a smaller amount, you can't even trade that because there, there's just not enough liquidity. So are you guys porting all of the liquidity from Bitfinex and just kind of merging the exchanges in a way and allowing people to access them um, through the flavor of their choice. They say, oh, I want to access through the centralized portal. I want to access through decentralized. And you're just linking all of the liquidity or are they still separate in some way? In a sense, yeah, you've kind of, I think it's got it pretty much right there in terms of it's, it's almost relaying and let's say there's an order placed on Bitfinex or it'll end up being Fnex since uh, actually the relationship here is that all ERC20 and Ethereum-based tokens will move from uh, Bitfinex to only trade on Fnex. Um But all of those will be, so any order that's placed on the centralized part of that exchange will essentially be offered through multiple different routes to allow someone to use the 0x protocol to, trip, to match with that order. And in the future, if other um, standards start to emerge, equally to use their chosen method of interfacing by a decentralized um, protocol, to access the same liquidity. Awesome, that's amazing. So you guys are really solving the, the liquidity portion there, you know, since you already have this, this existing very popular exchange, Bitfinex, which I'm sure many people have heard of and have used. Um, do you eventually see, and I, I know you're the project lead at Fnex and not necessarily Bitfinex, um, but since you, they are kind of the same company, do you see Bitfinex eventually decentralizing as well? Or do you still think there will always be that centralized component that has its own you know, set of features that a decentralized exchange maybe can't provide? Yeah, I mean, I mean, so, so they're separate companies, but I, I get the, the sense of your of your question, and that's that I, I do think a centralized exchange, at least for the foreseeable future, will always play a role. Um, I think they will serve very different markets, um, and that's already starting to happen. And so, for example, um, you know, there is this move, I think, especially for centralized exchanges, are going to need to be regulated um, in every, I mean, in a lot of the jurisdictions where they operate very soon. Um, and although the, the guidelines around that still aren't fully clear, as soon as they are, um, it will almost be that that will be the priority. And that, that will, in some senses, um, be a good thing in terms of it brings a lot more stability and security to those sorts of markets um, and allows different kinds, you know, for example, either hedge funds or um, other participants to come into that space. And those will be the ones who do really want the, the extremely high-speed execution um, and the kind of the kind of you know, they want to use things like fixed protocol, which they're used to from traditional stock markets. Um, whereas I think something like Fnx will start to swivel to face primarily a different kind of market. So, for example, um, you know the, the real kind of projects that we hope this will end up serving are people who actually have utility tokens will eventually launch themselves a decentralized application. And users of that decentralized application won't always 
hold in their wallets, you know, that, that protocol token all the time. But when they do need it, they'll get it via an exchange almost, you know, tr transparently. They won't actually know what's happening. They won't know that they might have Ethereum in their wallet, but they'll need to turn it into some other protocol token and use that to spend in the application and afterwards transfer back to Ethereum. And that's where we want Estenex really to be eventually targeting. Interesting. And, and do you see it as only kind of being that, that behind-the-scenes layer? Or I, I guess, obviously, if you guys have launched an exchange, you kind of see it being both behind-the-scenes and, um, you know, doing those swaps when people don't even realize it, to use an app or, or a dApp, rather, um, but but also as a user-facing exchange. But when it comes to, to Bitfinex, obviously, Fnex is limited to Ethereum and, and ERC-20 tokens. Do you ever foresee uh, maybe Fnex or maybe it's another decentralized exchange, you know, with a different name that, that's kind of under the same um, umbrella? Do you ever see people being able to trade Bitcoin for example, in a decentralized way? Oh, yeah, definitely. And, and definitely from a Bitfinex point of view, this is being seen as an experiment, um, a good way of gaining a lot of research very quickly about decentralized exchange. And, and the primary aim, I think, especially of Bitfinex, um, is to become fully decentralized. Um, and actually, I mean, so Bitfinex is already a distributed company in the sense that most of the employees are spread across the globe. There are small pockets of you know, employees who, who are together, but interesting. that kind of really shapes also the mentality of the company and its vision compared to, say, for example, having a huge office somewhere um, and, you know, that, that, that different um, corporate culture. And that's mirrored, for example, in um, a tool that Bitfinex uses now, which is um, called Grenache. So this was developed in-house and released open source. And it, it, it kind of is going to be the primary backbone of the future vision of Bitfinex, which will mean that the exchange will operate on this very lightweight, um, how to describe it? I mean, it, 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 this runs on a distributed hash table, so it means that you can do discovery of different services, um, no matter who's running them and where, meaning that anyone could almost eventually, when, when things start getting open sourced, run their own little node of the exchange. Um, and this it won't just be one centralized server architecture, which is reliant on, but it'll be almost, almost in a way mirroring how a blockchain works, but making sure that this is very highly resilient distributed exchange. And equally, when it becomes possible, and of course, much research is going into this, um, if it can run on a blockchain itself, which at the moment seems unlikely it may be some child chain or uh, version of that, um, that, that will also be, you know, the eventual aim. But I think the link maybe is that Ethernex and, you know, if there are other, other pools, will all kind of all, all end up being tied back together in some sense in terms of linking that liquidity, but building multiple pools in a kind of distributed network as opposed to just having one central entity. Interesting. And do you all ever see yourselves sharing some of that liquidity? Because, you know, we had the, the founders of Zero X on the podcast many, many months ago um, before their ICO, and we were talking a lot about liquidity. It's, you know, one of the, the biggest concerns people have, like I was saying earlier, um, with the centralized exchanges. And the one piece of the Zero X protocol that I thought was a little strange or, or that they, they maybe could have gone further with is, is actually doing exactly what you're talking about, linking that liquidity. Because if you suddenly come out with this decentralized ex exchange protocol, Zero X, and, and now you have dozens 
dozens of decentralized exchanges um, building on top of it, you're almost exacerbating that liquidity problem, and you're spreading that liquidity that was already thin um, out even thinner across multiple decentralized exchanges. So do you all see yourself as, as potentially leasing that liquidity to some of these other decentralized exchanges that are built on that same 0x well, protocol? Yeah, I mean, definitely. And, and that's also why we chose the 0x protocol as opposed to developing, I mean, actually what we, we do have our own version of or similar, you know, decentralized exchange settlement contracts. But the, zero, the, the benefit of the 0x protocol, of course, I mean, the vision is amazing in terms of being able to build um, you know, infinitely sharing liquidity pools where Absolutely. you can have yeah, trades happening like that. And it's a fantastic vision. I think there was one piece of the puzzle slightly missing, at least from the original vision of 0x. Um, and which has maybe been what's meant that, yeah, right now you don't see, I mean, there are multiple relayers using 0x, but you don't yet see much liquidity sharing going on between them. And that's the incentive exactly. to do so. Um, and so, and, and I've had some conversations with some of the other relayers about this. And so the problem is that you don't necessarily, unless you have a, have a mechanism for sharing the fees between exchanges, there's no incentive for anyone to not just hoard their liquidity. Um, so, for example, if you had a system where I, like our, our exchange has a certain number of maker orders, another exchange has, so, so let's say we have people who want to buy to make it simpler, and another exchange has people who want to sell, um, you need some incentive for us to match those together. And it's not an incentive if, if we took all the fees, it's not an incentive if they took all the fees. It's not even a very good incentive if we get to keep the fees from our side and they get to keep the fees from their side because in that case we'd be better off trying to find someone in our own liquidity pool. But, right. if, but if you set up, for example, a system where when we when we have those two, two participants on either side, if, if we got the fees that their traders pay and they got the fees that our traders pay, you then start to create um, a really, really interesting sort of participation mechanisms because you also don't get a, a fight for fees to the bottom. If, if, for example, their exchange charges quite high fees, we would have an incentive to want to match our liquidity to theirs in order to get those fees and equally vice versa. Interesting. Um, and you then start to create a real market for these sorts of sharing. Um, and, and as we know, and that's what you know, much of crypto is built on, it's really markets that drive forward these kind of open um, systems. And that's where that, that is that market mechanism for, for liquidity sharing that still needs a bit of thought. Absolutely. But that's something that, that you guys think you could solve in some way, potentially? I mean, there's been a lot of conversations about it. And for example, what I mentioned is kind of the very basic idea of how, how it could be solved. And I think it, it will be solved, but it's still uh, that that's still something we're in discussions with. And no, no one's quite sure yet how it's going to it's going to work out. Um, when it does, it will be it'll be big. Absolutely. So you mentioned it, it going back to you know Bitfinex and that uh, kind of you know you guys seeing that this this whole um, exchange infrastructure kind of distributing itself or becoming more decentralized. Um, what was the name of the the platform that you mentioned? It started with a G. Yeah. So this is a this is a microservice architecture called Grenache. 
Grenache. Okay. So with Grenache, I mean, the, the biggest question I've heard when I talk to people about, you know, Ethfinex and then potentially Bifinex decentralizing all their exchange infrastructure, or even someone, you know, like a Coinbase or somebody eventually moving to a decentralized infrastructure, even if maybe some of the custodial por portions uh, with Coinbase in particular are still centralized, is why does an exchange like Bitfinex, you know, you guys have a, a very profitable business model now, you're making tons of money in fees. Why do you all want to go the decentralized route where then you could kind of be um, disrupted by another decentralized exchange partner or maybe have less control over the platform? Why would you guys want to give up that control if you're able to monetize it so well now and, and uh, it, it's working? Why, why decentralize? Good question. Um, so there are, there are many reasons and maybe some of them aren't so obvious externally. One of the obvious ones, I mean, at least from a Bitfinex perspective, is, of course, that they had the hack uh, back in 2016, in August, yeah. um, which obviously seriously highlights to everyone the dangers of decentralization. Um, Absolutely. I mean, of, cent of centralization, rather. It was, what, uh, 120,000 Bitcoins were stolen? Uh, I don't know the exact number in Bitcoins. It was, it was around $70 million at the time um, wow. in, in Bitcoin. Um, and equally, so that's obviously, and, and, and the worst thing about that um, was that most of what was, so there was, there were more funds stolen than were in active orders at the time. So uh, as, uh, what, what I mean by that is people had let, basically essentially left their, their funds on the platform, but they weren't being used in trades or anything. So they weren't making any money for Bitfinex, but they were a risk sitting there. Um, oh, interesting. And essentially that risk then, you know, cost a lot more than anything that uh, they would have earned from that trading. Um, so, and equally, the recovery from that, um, which used the token uh, to kind of you know, build a bit of a network back and eventually repay users, um, also gave some really big lessons about the value of building a kind of distributed network of owners almost. Um, and, and many, many people who had tokens and who lost money during that hack became shareholders and ended up, you know, being large participants in adding value back to Bitfinex later on. So they, they saw, and as a disruptor, yeah, they, they kind of saw the value of building that network very early on and, and why it's important. Um, from an actual exchange point of view now, first of all, it's clear that, you know, decentralized exchanges are coming anyway, and it is a better model. I mean, no one, even, you know, I think many people outside may see centralized exchanges as kind of, power structures who are making a lot of money, you know, why, why would they want to lose that? Right. But they didn't come, you know, the people who founded these exchanges didn't come into the cryptocurrency ecosystem to make money. They came really early on when it was all about the ideology. And it still right. is to some extent. Um, you know, they love Bitcoin because it was decentralized. Um, and equally, that's always been, you know, beat down the ideology. Um, so, but, but, I mean, for, that, that's kind of the the, ba the base layer. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, makes, the real key, yeah, so go on. No, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's it's always good to hear somebody, you know, like you said, they were the founders who started in the early days, still maintain those those same values, even after making a, a ton of money with, with Bitfinex. And, you know, putting it in the context of the hack makes a ton of sense from a liability perspective of, okay, now we're not... Um, legally responsible or liable for holding, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of, of Bitcoin, or to, to put it in, I guess, easier to understand terms, you know, tens of millions to hundreds of millions, sometimes billions of dollars that you guys are responsible for um, in terms of, you know, 
maintaining custody over those assets. So to be able to, to remove that aspect from your business, I can totally see how, you know, that simplifies a lot of things, um, especially from the liability perspective. So, so that's great. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, was there, there any thought you wanted to, to kind of add to that? I know that was kind of piece one is, you know, looking at the, the overall um, kind of ethos of, of cryptocurrency or, you know, the, the reasoning behind it. Um, are, are there any other reasons why you guys might want to decentralize instead of stay as a, a centralized entity? Yeah, I mean, the, so the other aspect, and I think this is something that Ethernet will struggle with to begin with, being both centralized and decentralized, is, is the regulation. Um, and that's the, big, that's the big benefit that pure decentralized exchanges do have um, in that you know, it's very clear at this stage that regulators are starting to take this industry much more seriously. Um, they're giving strong guidance. They're not yet taking any action. But they are speaking, for example, I mean, probably hundreds or more uh, direct requests every day with Bitfinex from law, law enforcement. Oh, wow. um, and that's only going to increase. And also the regulatory oversight is only going to start to actually have, have more of an influence over the and next few months. Requests- are those regulatory requests, like requests for tax records? Are they requests for, you know, specific people on the exchange? Could you kind of give us some context around those, those government requests? Yeah, I mean, I can't give specifics or anything, but for example, um, you know, it, it's very, it's very often very clear on the on the blockchain when stolen funds are moving around, and if those oh, funds yeah. get sent to to Bitfinex, um, law enforcement are going to say, "Oh, whose account was that?" For example, definitely course, that makes sense. Um, it, they're obliged, especially if it was depending on the jurisdiction, to hand over that information, um, and, and that's the kind of thing which. As a centralized exchange, you have to deal with, and increasingly there, there are then going to be all sorts of other regulations about which sort of tokens potentially you can list. Um, which, you know, somewhere like Ether Delta, obviously, is the simplest case, is not going to be subject to because um, at least the, the contracts themselves, maybe not the website, um, are running in a purely decentralized fashion. So there's no way that that can be stopped, and there's no way the controllers or the creators have any responsibility to. Um, later you know monitor that or exclude certain people and that's both good and bad but it does um it does mean that a decentralized exchange can operate for example in listing tokens which might not be welcome on a centralized exchange um for whatever reason depending on jurisdiction and there are other sorts of flexibilities which a decentralized exchange can have Hmm. And one of the, the interesting comparisons I've seen for decentralized exchanges, you know, when something is decentralized and truly peer-to-peer, like you're saying, I mean, unless they, they being a government or some other entity, shuts down the entire internet, you really can't stop um, that peer-to-peer software. What's, what's interesting, one of the, the biggest comparisons I see to kind of play devil's advocate with that thought um, is the Silk Road. And I know um, when it comes to the Silk Road being hosted on Tor, I guess I'm not 100% sure if all of that was decentralized or if it wasn't. But ultimately, at the end of the day, Ross Ulbricht, who was, you know, the guy behind the Silk Road, even though he wasn't the one um, selling, you know, goods which may have been illegal in certain jurisdictions, even though he wasn't the one listing that um, or or facilitating those transactions in any way, um, he ultimately was was given the legal responsibility and and sort of the repercussions um, from the Silk Road being shut down. Is that something that you think could apply similarly to decentralized exchanges where, you know, the U.S. government in particular says, hey, we don't care that it's decentralized or that you're not holding these funds. All we care about is that you guys own, 
fnx.com and because of that we're going to ask you to change these things is is that a something you know a potential maybe yeah wrench it, in the, it's the gears certainly there? um yeah it's certainly a, a concern and a question so it, it's it's how you define where control lies right. um and what efforts are being done by people who if you can if you can ascertain that someone has control so for example yes i think if you operate and run a website and a domain even if it can be accessed through other means Probably um, that that part of you know at least while you have that centralized control of any aspect, you do need to be complying with and making efforts to comply with regulations in whichever jurisdiction you're operating in. So that's where yeah the distinction is really going to be difficult. So for example, for FNX, having both centralized and decentralized is going to be tough from a regulatory point of view because you certainly do need to comply and make sure that what you're doing is legal on anything where you have that control. Um, yeah, whereas decentralized exchanges, at least if they're fully decentralized, I think once it's, for example, you know, no, I don't think the creators of Ethereum could be um, liable for what happens on Ethereum now because it has right. been and released and they no longer have that control. Right, absolutely. That's a great, uh, great comparison. Um, when it comes to the, you know, you mentioned that kind of hybrid approach, hybrid centralization, hybrid decentralization with FNX. Uh, what does the roadmap look like in terms of taking it from where it is now and, and taking it to that pure decentralized model? Where, how does that, how does that look, and, and when will that happen? So the first step will be, at least I'm going to ignore for now our token, which is kind of a different concept, although it really wraps in. The first step, from an exchange point of view, will be to add these trustless portals, and that's. That's really ready now. I mean, we could launch that now, but um, it's not so impressive in terms of it, it's very similar to uh, well, it, it uses the Zero X protocol and on, on maintain Ethereum. And what we've already seen, I think, from the relayers that have launched is that that's it's it's a it's a limited solution because of the number of transactions you can actually do on maintain Ethereum. Um, and we, we will still launch that first, and that will be the way that people will be able to access FNX liquidity without having to deposit and withdraw funds um, via MetaMask or a Ledger Nano S, or so that's hardware storage. Um, and the next step will then be to look at more scalable solutions. So that's kind of where a lot of our research is being done now, but that's going to be further down the line before we have anything that's available and ready to run in a way which we would really consider as a true decentralized exchange. Definitely. And scalability is something that I definitely want to touch on. Um, you know, we've seen it time and time again, whether it's CryptoKitties or an ICO that gets super popular and then the Ethereum network kind of comes to a halt. And it's a similar problem that Bitcoin and, and a lot of other platforms are facing now. It, it, you know, I would say arguably that scalability is the biggest problem facing uh, mainstream adoption of, of cryptocurrency and, and specifically these platforms like Ethereum, um, where, you know, a dApp can't even run on it if it, if it got mainstream success. Um, is that something that you guys are trying to mitigate in some way? Are you, you know, looking at other platforms that are yet to be launched? Are you looking at off chain solutions to kind of scale this? What, what are your views on scalability moving forward? I think my view, and I think pretty much the consensus as far as people I've spoken with, is that running on main chain Ethereum is not the solution in any, uh, to any scalable um, DAP, basically. Right. And that everything will run on the equivalent of side or child chains. So one option we're looking at, for example, is a plasma type model. 
Um, that's, you know, so basically you, for example, have your own, and this could even be proof of authority, so there'd be an, an FNX chain um, where these settlement uh, exchange transactions happen, but users can basically deposit and withdraw their funds back onto maintain Ethereum at the end of um, using this exchange. And so that's one way that you kind of shift a lot of the transaction volume off of the main chain um, and make it much faster and cheaper. Another option in a similar sense is using Cosmos, and that's the other one that we're uh, we're now quite excited about. So there's e Ethermint, um, which essentially allows anyone to deploy Ethereum smart contracts using Solidity even um, onto an equivalent virtual machine, but which uses the Tendermint proof of proof of stake, um, or rather, essentially uses the Tendermint protocol. Um, rather than using Ethereum proof of work. And again, that's another option which could add quite a lot more scalability very quickly, very early on. In the longer term, of course, we're hoping for all sorts of improvements to maintain Ethereum, sharding, um, proof of stake, Casper. But again, we never see, I never really see, even with those kind of improvements, it being likely that any of these sorts of, any DAP really that's being developed now will want to run on main chain. Right, that makes sense. And if, uh, if say, a new blockchain platform, I know there are a lot now um, that, it, that have kind of moved up recently into the top 20 that claim to be scalable, claiming anywhere from, you know, 10,000 transactions per second, which is, you know, still not enough or something like this, all the way up to millions or even infinite transactions per second. If, if a platform like that came along um, and you guys said, oh, wow, we can, you know, do everything we've always wanted to do on main chain Ethereum, but now we can do it on this other main chain, is that something that you guys are, are open to switching to, assuming it supported, you know, the Ethereum virtual machine and ERC-20 tokens and supported all of the functionality that you guys now offer? Well, it really depends where, from what you said, where the boundary lies. I mean, if everything ported over there, so other applications, other developers, the whole of this ecosystem ported there, that would make some sense. Um, I can't see that happening. But and also, but but of course, yeah, I think we'd have to look at it if that was possible. Um, I mean, the real value here and why Ethereum is so powerful is the number of projects and the developer ecosystem that's on Definitely. it. Definitely. Um, and that's again who. You know, as I said, that's who we want to serve. You know, we see lots of these dApps becoming customers. So, um, someone like someone who wants to create a decentralized hedge fund on Ethereum, um, they're going to need to access uh, liquidity and be able to exchange on chain. And that's kind of where we're trying to target. And of course, if we ported to some other network, um, which may be you know more scalable in the sense of being able to do a high number of transactions per second, that's not going to be much value. I mean, you know, something like BitShares, um, which exists, has had a decentralized exchange quite early on um, and didn't get much traction because it didn't have the ecosystem around it. Right. And the value of that really can't be um, under-expressed. I mean, that's really what is so important about being on Ethereum. 
Interesting. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. And it's, it's always interesting to hear, you know, the perspective of um, where people kind of see the market going as well. And I agree. I mean, I've, I've read stats that say, you know, Ethereum has 30 times more developers than other platforms. But I can also see a situation where that that does switch if a new platform comes out that's, that's you know, so much better. And I think we have yet to see that, um, at least in terms of platforms that are actually launched. But it'll certainly be an interesting year to, to see what happens and see where those developers and, and the community kind of goes from there. Um, I want to talk more about, you know, you mentioned two things uh, at the beginning. You have this token sale or ICO platform. And then you also have this community forum and you're, you're really uh, seem big on building that community around the, the decentralized exchange. Um, so first, why don't we talk about the, the ICO or token sale platform? What are you guys doing there? And, and uh, what's different, you know, or what are you guys improving on from the current ICO or, or token sale structure? So actually, it's really simple. Um, and, and to begin with, I think we had bigger visions for the token sale platform, um, but decided not to go down that route. And Instead, all, all we have is basically um, the ability to allow users who have already got their funds with us to pre-pledge them towards an ICO, and we just send, you know, in, in one batch transaction. Then, when the when the ICO begins, um, a transaction to that contract, and usually that would be, you know, some some part that's been reserved already um, in a whitelist in that crowd sale contract. So there's nothing particularly um, innovative there except for the fact that we're kind of completing the whole cycle. So, you know, users already have their funds on the exchange. They can contribute um, without the hassle of, you know, first withdrawing and rushing to get it into an ICO if they haven't, you know, got a certain allocation um, or having to do it in an exact, in exact window. But then straight away having them on the exchange afterwards um, ready to trade or do whatever they want with them. Awesome. So it's, yeah, that it's just, like you know, the whole circle there. Absolutely. And that sounds like a, you know, you say, you know, maybe there's nothing innovative there from, from a tech perspective, but I think from a user experience perspective, that is pretty innovative because right now, you know, you think of ICOs, the, the whole model is very fragmented. And, and what I mean by that is that um, every ICO is, is generally a little bit different. They have their in, own intricacies. Some require KYC, some don't. Some, you know, are accepting Ether, some are accepting Bitcoin, some want you to um, register your address ahead of time. Some just want you to send it when the contract opens. There are all these different variables that I think are very hard for new users who are coming into the ICO market for the first time. It's, it's very hard for them to grasp and kind of understand. And so even just something as simple as what you're saying, I mean, allowing somebody to take their exchange funds, which they're already familiar with, they already know how to use and, and pledge that to an ICO and have you guys kind of handle that that complicated or that, that point of... Uh, almost a point of contention in, in the ICO space where people are worried, am I sending to the right address? Um, am I going to make it in or am I not going to be one of the first? And, uh, you know, I'm not going to get the allocation I wanted. I think there are a lot of problems that you guys are solving with that, that, that uh, um, I wouldn't be so quick to dismiss. So I think that's very cool what you guys are doing there. Um, but moving on from kind of the token sale or ICO platform, uh, let's talk about the forum. How are you guys trying to make Ethfinex a community um, relative to other exchanges, which may just be places where people, you know, buy and sell and, and don't don't even talk with other people in that community? Yeah. Okay. So, and that, that that's still, this is still early stages, but what we essentially have in the discussion forum is sort of mo multiple tokens, um, some which are already traded and some which are not yet traded. Um, who each have basically five different sections. So there'll be a white paper section, a team section, a development section, for example, and several others, where uh, users can basically post their analysis, their thoughts, um, if they've been developing or tried out the tools, they, how, how they are, um, all sorts of technical analysis on the trading as well, um, and also rate the token, based, giving it basically a buy, sell, or hold rating. So you build up almost... 
an analyst, a, a crowdsourced analyst rating of each project. Um, and essentially, that will also be, so, for example, uh, based on a user's trading volume and their also, their, the success of their trading on FNX, that their opinion of a token might carry more weight than someone who, you know, has actually lost a lot of money or not traded much. Um, and so you kind of build up quite a strong um, analyst rating of each project. And those that get really high ratings are the ones which, especially ones which aren't yet listed, are the ones which then get put up basically into a vote. Um, for the moment, that's not implemented since we haven't yet distributed um, our exchange token. But uh, for the moment, um, you know, those will then go through a compliance review and be listed. But later on, those will be put into a vote and token holders will essentially choose which project um, from that list they like and it'll end up getting listed. And that's kind of how things will be prioritized in terms of making sure that high quality community reviewed projects are the ones which are traded on FNX. Interesting. And is that almost like a, some kind of a reputation system where, you know, you mentioned, oh, if I've lost a lot of money and, and then I say, oh, buy this token, people probably aren't going to listen to me. Are you tracking that at the the account level within FNX and, and kind of um, judging people's success or failure based on that? Is that an identity yeah, so, system? So, or so, so that's a reputation system linked to your account um, based on a couple of factors, both how much you know your posts get rated by other users, but also based on your trading performance. So it's a combination of both, which gives your overall reputation. Oh, okay, interesting. And do you do you guys think that that reputation is enough to kind of prevent shills? I mean, what's preventing um, somebody from generating ten thousand new accounts and going and, and telling a bunch of people to buy a new token? Do you all have protections in place for stuff like that? So if if you've got a zero trading volume, your your posts count for zero, of course. Um, okay. It may also piss a lot of people off if you're posting, you know, just selling a picture token all over the place. And actually, the ones who do have reputation then may just downvote it. I think I think we'll have to see how it works. Um, we may have to bring in other protections. It's obviously an early stage. And until we've also, um, you know, fully launched Ethernex, uh, like we are seeing, you know, quite good growth of and of quality and quantity of comments. But until it's really up and running. Um, we don't expect to be putting too much weight onto the actual ratings that we're getting. Um, but yeah, we're, I think we'll have to wait and see. I, I am optimistic about it. Definitely. Yeah. And it, it's something that, you know, out of every aspect of this business model, that's definitely the hardest part to, to build or to tackle, right? Is the, the community portion, building that community, you know, Always, bringing yeah. in enough, enough people that, you know, bring good knowledge that uh, you know, people are going to upvote them and, and just kind of facilitate that, that whole community interaction. So it, it makes a lot of sense that that'll take a little longer to, to kind of, um, see how it all, uh, see how the cookie crumbles, so to speak, see how it all works out in the end. Um, the, the last thing that I kind of wanted to touch on was the FNX token itself. So you mentioned, you know, you guys aren't doing an ICO, you're not going to do an airdrop for these tokens, you're kind of just going to give them to the people that are using your platform. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that's going to work? Yeah, so the, the, the fundamentals of this token, it's called the next token, um, is that every 30 days, it'll be distributed to traders. Um, so, and by that, I mean people who are adding liquidity to the order books. So if I place an order onto the book and someone else matches with it and trades with it, um, the person who placed that order on is the one who gets rewarded with some of these next tokens. So essentially, the longer you stay there and the more, the more of these you earn, um, the bigger stake you end up having in, in the next token. And you can essentially use them to, so I'll add to that, um, 
the fees that you generate by, by doing those trades get sent, 50% of them get sent to the Nectar smart contract. So over time, this Nectar smart contract builds up a pool of Ethereum, and people who have these tokens can claim that Ethereum using those tokens and burning them. Um, so what we'll really see is that that gradual shift of decentralization will be accompanied by a gradual shift in the ownership of FNX so that eventually the control will belong to the next token holders who will have both uh, the fees which are being paid into that contract, but also the ability to vote on uh, governance decisions and to work with um, yeah, yeah, voting on different tokens. And so we've now joined the Aragon Working Group, which is um, launching, kicking off very soon, which is going to be working on all these kind of problems of how we actually facilitate on-chain governance. But again, it's early days. Um, and the next token launch is going to be pretty much our next milestone, hopefully later this month, when we'll start to distribute that those to, to traders. Awesome. That's great. So if, if somebody's listening right now and they're saying, wow, you know, FNX sounds amazing. The, the whole community aspect sounds awesome. I'd love to, to be able to, you know, come out and, and earn some of those tokens by trading on the platform. How can somebody who's listening and is, is interested, how can they get involved right now? So right now you can you can go on and try FNX and sign up, but it won't be until uh, till we exit beta that that will start being a major um, possibility. Of course, if you, if you want to start trading, of course, we encourage that. Is it open to uh, the public? You mentioned you're in a beta stage. Is, are, are people able to go to fnx.com right now and, and sign up, or is there kind of a waiting period right now as you guys get out of beta? They are able to. Uh, our beta users have already been invited and, and, and can create accounts. Um, you can create an account on FNX now, but it's it's quite limited in what you can do. Um, users who have existing Bitfinex accounts can access everything, and that's who we're getting a lot of our early feedback from. Obviously, these are users who may have quite a lot of experience already with exchanges. So um, later on, we'll open more fully to the general public um, and that will kind of coincide probably with our exit from beta. Awesome. And do you guys have a timeline or some kind of roadmap as to when that might be? We we do. I mean, it was supposed to be basically now. Um, and of course, the thing that always slows down these projects is the legal side. Definitely. So we don't we don't want to you know get that wrong. And that's what's like that's what keeps pushing us back a little bit. But as soon as that's ready, which yeah, as I said, kind of really hope to be during January if possible that's when we're going to really kick everything off. Awesome. So if people want to, you know, kind of stay up to date and, and be updated when the, the beta is over and they can sign up, should they follow you guys on Twitter? Or should they sign up on an email form on your website? Where can they go? Yeah, we're, we're pretty active on Twitter. And we've also got a Telegram group, um, which is available on both our Twitter and Reddit, um, where that, that, that's kind of where we are at the moment seeing, doing the most updating and answering a lot of questions. Fun to build quite a good community feel in there. I recommend Telegram Group, definitely. Awesome. That's great. Well, uh, Will, thank you so much. Once again, Will Harborn, the project lead at FNX. I, I sincerely appreciate your time. This was a very interesting discussion. I'm, I'm very curious to see you know, how FNX and Bitfinex develop moving forward. So thank you so much, Will. And of course, best of luck uh, moving out of beta and with the, the token launch coming up. Thank you very much.
Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I sincerely appreciate it. If you'd like to request someone to be on the podcast in the future, tweet us at ICO Alert and let us know. Most of our guests are requests from listeners just like you, so we review every single recommendation that comes through in our Twitter feed. Uh, we'll look at everything. So if there's a lesser-known project that you think we should cover, you know, let us know. Maybe we'll have them on the podcast. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and be the first to hear our new episodes. And also, don't forget to check out icoalert.com to see the only comprehensive list of active and upcoming ICOs. I'm your host, Robert Finch, and I'll be back next week with a brand new episode.